All right. Welcome back to Journalistic Integrity. Got a great jam-packed all-NFL episode today. Kind of a weird weekend in football. Not a lot of great games, big marquee matchups on Saturday or Sunday, although we did finish on a high note with the finish in New England with the Cowboys winning in overtime and then the overtime game between the Steelers and Seahawks. It's also just kind of weird because two of the top teams in the AFC, the Browns and Chargers, both get blown out. Kind of saw it coming with the Chargers looking back on it. They're converting 60% of their third and longs, and that isn't sustainable. They were due for a regression, but still losing by that much to the Ravens was pretty shocking. Before I get to the Monday night game between the Bills and Titans, I wanted to start with two quick observations. As sports fans, we use the eye test a lot where you can look at a team or players and be like, nah, I don't think that works. That doesn't fit. Or you see a perfect fit, like a Randy Moss going to New England. You're like, man, this works. Brady's throwing the deep ball perfectly, and that's exactly what Randy Moss does well. But other times with the eye test, you can see something immediately and say, no, there's no way that's going to work. There's That just doesn't fit. We see it with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid at the end of Sixers games in the playoffs. Too congested down low. Not that hard to decipher it. That doesn't work. We saw it with Ocho Cinco with the Patriots immediately in the first game. It just didn't seem right. It's tough to really say what it was, but it just didn't pass the eye test and ended up not working. We also saw that with Harden and Westbrook. Two guys that need the ball, and when the other one didn't have the ball, they didn't know what to do off ball. And you could immediately see in the first 10-15 games, I don't think this works. And that brings us to Odell Beckham with the Cleveland Browns. So far, he's played four games with the Cleveland Browns, 14 catches, 200 yards, no touchdowns. On average, he's getting four receptions for 50 yards. Baker's roughly 50% when he targets Odell Beckham. On average, through the first 27 games with Cleveland, Odell brings in four catches for 58 yards. But with the Giants, Odell brought in seven catches for 102 yards, almost double the amount of production production with the Giants. And just watching the games, whenever Odell's open, whenever it's a big third down, Baker misses him. He's trying to force it to him sometimes. And that's why the percentage completion percentage is so low when Odell's targeted. You want to make sure he gets his touches. He's okay. He's not going to be upset with Baker. And then when Baker does connect with OBJ on a big play, on a big fourth down, big third down, Odell will have a big drop. And it's been going like this for two and a half years now. And at some point, you've got to cut bait and say, this didn't work. This wasn't how we planned it. And try and trade him and get you know a third, second round pick. I'm not sure what the market is for Odell right now. But Baker's got better chemistry with not only Landry, not only the tight ends, but also Donovan Peoples-Jones. And trying to force targets to OBJ, the offense isn't as effective, much less efficient. And we've seen it with the numbers through two and a half years. The Browns' offense is just better when OBJ is not on the field. And I think it's time before the trade deadline to make a move, maybe get another receiver or another piece, a draft pick, something. But at this point, the OBJ experiment has not worked and they need to move on. Second thing, Urban Meyer. 
coming in, the media, the media disliked him. There's some coaches media dislike for whatever reason. Maybe they didn't want a college coach coming in and taking the shine away from all the other coaches. Maybe they don't like his personality, whatever. But immediately when Urban lost the first few games, is immediately Urban can't coach. He's in over his head, all that stuff. But it's almost like the media forgot that the Jaguars lost their last 15 games from the previous year. Urban was taking over a roster that every single position group they have is going to be worse than their opponents. They are across the board, not a very good team. They've got a receiver that can make some plays, and then Lawrence is good. But other than that, they're de a depleted team. He's coaching a less talented roster, and to put the first five losses on Urban and just automatically jumping to the conclusion he can't coach is a little ridiculous in the media showing their bias that they just didn't like Urban to begin with. But for him to go into London, when we've seen the past years, a team that wins in London is normally the better coach team, the team with more organizational structure, most leadership, more together where they can handle the logistics and still be ready to play in a different time zone and all this long travel. That speaks a lot that the Jaguars, despite being 0-5, despite not having a chance of making the playoffs, still came out, played hard, were down early, and came back and won. And it was a really impressive win for Urban Meyer and Lawrence to win that game. And the media makes a big deal of you know the Urban video when he had the lady dancing on him. But, I mean, when you see him in the locker room, the players seem to like him. Lawrence always has his arm around him on the sidelines. And I think sometimes when a video off the field type stuff thing happens, the media thinks it's like a huge deal that it's going to disrupt the locker room. But in reality, the locker room, all those guys have wives, kids, stuff going on in their own personal lives. They're not really, you know, scrolling Twitter or analyzing Urban Meyer as much as the media is. And sometimes that off the field stuff, it really isn't that big of a deal. The people in that locker room have a lot more stuff that they're concerned about. They have injuries. They're trying to play for another contract. They've got families that I've mentioned that they've got to take care of, all that stuff. And I think that story was blown out of proportion. And I think it's time that Urban, we give him a little bit of credit. I think he's a decent coach. I don't know if top half, top 16 coach. I'm not sure yet. It's only been six games, but I think we've got to put into context the type of roster that Urban is working with and the realistic goals of winning four or five games is a big improvement from their 1-15 record a year ago. Okay, awesome, awesome Monday night football game. The Titans hold on to win it 34-31. Both teams moving to 4-2, and two, and it took a big goal line stop, fourth and inches, Josh Allen, QB sneak. He kind of slips and doesn't really gain any yards on the QB sneak. We actually saw him do a similar QB sneak earlier in the first half, and it's not a normal QB sneak. He doesn't just get it, and most quarterbacks just go straight when they get it. He takes a half step back, waits, and then he picks a side, and he went to the left side both times on his two QB sneaks, stopped on both of them, and they were waiting for it. Uh, it was a three-point game. The Bills could have kicked the field goal, but it was the right move, and if you want, if McDermott wants to set a certain culture tempo to his team, it's, hey, we can get a fourth and in inches here and win the game right here instead of kicking the field goal and going into overtime. The Titans defense wasn't very good, but they were good enough at spots to make Allen a little uncomfortable. 
And I think we saw that at the third and goal where Allen does a scramble, reach out, comes up inches short. But Beasley was wide open in the back left corner of the end zone, and that would have won the game for the Bills. And that was happening throughout where the Titans were getting just enough pressure, just enough sacks on Allen where, and I've said this multiple times, the great equalizer when you're an outmatched team is the defensive pressure. They were to get to Allen a couple times where he's escaping the pocket a little early, not as comfortable as he normally is. And I think that showed up in that final crucial third down play where he didn't hit Beasley in the corner of the end zone. But the real story of this game was the Bills defense or lack of defense. The Titans score on their final six possessions. So they go touchdown, field goal, touchdown. Then we go to the second half. Touchdown, field goal, and then a touchdown to end it. So they score on their last six possessions, four touchdowns, two field goals. Not the Bills defense we're used to seeing. They're by far the best defense on the rush, against the rush, and against the pass coming into this game. And the Titans lit them up. Derrick Henry was awesome. And it is crazy you hear, you know, Derrick Henry gets better as the game goes on. But, um, you're like, yeah, I mean, he looks better, but what are the actual stats? I've never seen any stats that actually back it up. But then ESPN showed a cool graphic of his yards per carry through each quarter. First quarter, 2.7 yards per carry, which is well below average. And then the fourth quarter, he jumps more than double to 6.2 yards per carry. And it goes up each quarter. And Derrick Henry had the big, long run to, to get him on the scoreboard. It was just awesome throughout. And you can see it where Tannehill was not very good in the first half when Derrick Henry wasn't running well. But then when they start picking up these big chunks, the play action is incredible with Tannehill and Derrick Henry. All of the linebackers for the Bills come forward on the play action pass, and it was just leaving these huge holes for A.J. Brown to do these deep crossers and Julio Jones, and they were just cutting up this Bills defense once they got the run game going. Other notes, Cole Beasley had a good game. He had a wide-open touchdown catch, and so we got the good uh, Beasley social distancing in the end zone tweet. So that was that was awesome to see uh, people out there getting those tweets off. Still feel good about the Bills as the top AFC team. I don't think the Titans really showed something, this blueprint on how to beat the Bills. They just couldn't stop Derrick Henry, and that's what it came down to, and that opened up the pass game. But in the first half, when they were stopping Henry, the Titans offense couldn't do anything. The play action, the uh, there's I don't think A.J. Brown had a catch in the first half. I think it was just they could not figure out Derrick Henry. They're having to put a bunch of guys in the box, and then that opened up the pass game. But I think the Bills still really good. I mean, all different phases from their secondary to their defensive line. Uh, Josh Allen, quarterback. They're still the premier team in the AFC the Titans needed this game more and they're sneaky four and two now I would have guessed they were three and three but they're sneaky four and two they needed this one they're slumping a little bit so Titans hold on at home against the Bills good win for Tennessee let's shift to the Chiefs and Washington game I was there at FedEx field no credentials were left out for me which was disappointing but and before we get to ha what happened in the actual game we hear all about the organizational dysfunction around the Washington football team, the front office, coaches, owner, all that stuff. And it's funny, interesting how you will see this dysfunction, disarray 
appear in different spots. And I saw it while I was at FedEx Field for the game, and I jotted down a couple things. Number one, the video board at FedEx Field is tiny, and it's also like a rectangle. And in most stadiums, basically every other stadium, it's closer to a TV, more closer to a square. But at the FedEx Field, it's like a rectangle, and it makes it really hard to watch the replays and whatnot. Speaking of replays, they barely show any replays. There's a Mahomes interception. You probably saw the clips on the internet where he fumbles a snap and he's flailing around. He just kind of flips it up and Washington picks it off. The play, the biggest play of the game up until that point. And they wait like five minutes until they show a replay. And it was insane. And then there's a couple fumbles in the game where they weren't showing any replays at the stadium. And when you're watching the game on TV, you see all these replays. Was his elbow down? Was his knee down? They don't show the replays. You have no idea. Second thing, there's a, I guess third thing, there was a injury where a guy needed to be taken off on a cart. And so the trainers are sitting next to the player. They give the signal to have the cart brought onto the field. From the time they gave that signal to the cart actually coming out was like three and a half, four minutes. And I was thinking, man, they probably have like a flat tire on that, on that thing that they didn't check and they had to change it real quick. Also, the cart comes on the field, and it's leaving these huge marks on the field. This might happen at other stadiums. I'm not sure. Um, it wouldn't happen with turf, but other real grass stadiums. It was leaving these huge marks on the field as the cart was driving on and off. And you could see the whole the track, and it looked like it was leaving some divots and stuff like that. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some special tires you're supposed to put on those uh, coverings on the tires or something like that to prevent – it from leaving indentations on the field, but the Washington football team did not seem bothered by that. Let's go to what happened on the actual field. Shaky first half for the Chiefs, 13-10, could have been 16-10, but the football team missed a field goal. And if the Chiefs are playing a competent team, let's say out of the remaining 30 teams, probably 20 of them could have beaten the Chiefs on Sunday because the Chiefs, once again, you know, it's supposed to be a get-right game but they still had these bad turnovers. Mahomes, two interceptions, a bad fumble by Hardman. And the Mahomes interception thing, he's already got more interceptions this year than he had last year. And you look back at last year, he actually had the most dropped intercepted passes. So his number was much lower than it should have been if the defensive backs had caught more of his interceptions and I feel like that's a stat that should be calculated and shouldn't be that hard to, to calculate. Instead of actual interceptions, let's make it how many passes hit two hands of the defensive back. But anyway, bad interception. Um, with the, Tyree, the, the second interception wasn't his fault. Tyreek Hill dropped it in the red zone. But there's three turnovers in Washington territory, two of them in the red zone. But Washington could not take advantage of these turnovers. That's what good teams do. When you turn the ball over, they make you pay for it. They put you in a you know two-score deficit and really make you pay for those turnovers. And Washington didn't do that. Heineke was okay. Um, he had a couple good plays, a couple bad passes, and the receivers let him down a few times. McLaurin had a bad drop. Um, there are a few drops that really, really cost the Redskins or the, the football team. And, I mean, the Chiefs could have easily lost this game. They hit their groove late which, you know, they had a segment of like the second half of the third quarter and the fourth quarter where they looked like the old Chiefs, where they're throwing it on 
downs they're supposed to start, you know, in late in the fourth quarter when you're supposed to be running the clock out. They're choosing to throw the ball because they're so confident in their passing game. And a couple of things I wanted to note on the Chiefs' side. Chiefs, uh, this is when the game was still up for grabs. I think it was 13-10. And third and 16 for the football team right around the 50. And the Chiefs send an all-out blitz. And Washington has a perfect play call. They throw a screen to McKissick, who is one of the best receiving running backs. He's really, really good. And he gets 17 yards, picks up the first down. Tyron Matthew, I've never seen him this angry, but he is yelling. He's throwing up his arms, not yelling at players, yelling at Steve Spagnola, the coach, for calling that play because when you call an all-out blitz on third and 17, it's almost saying we don't trust our regular base defense to not let Washington convert on a third and 17. We've got to do something different. We've got to take a risk, which makes no sense. Uh, despite the Chiefs' defensive woes, they, they were better in that game. And guess what? I mean, they're not facing a good Washington offense where they would need to do that. And so they give it up. Tyron Matthew comes off the field. He's throwing his helmet. He's yelling at everybody. Spagnola comes over, tries to talk to him. Tyron's like, get out of here. And it was cool to see because Tyron really cares. It's awesome to have a player on your team that really cares about it. And he was he was mad about that for like 25 minutes. It wasn't one of those things that – blew over you see the 31 13 final score and if you didn't watch the game you would think man the Chiefs back on schedule winning by 18 points on the road this is the Chiefs of old but that's really not how it was and the Chiefs uh are one of the biggest momentum teams ever like when the offense is turning the ball over then the defense will let up a big play and then we shank a punt uh, we had like a 20-yard punt but all of this it seems like it's all connected the offense defense special teams and then when we get in a groove, when the offense scores a touchdown, then the defense is playing with confidence. Then we get a turnover like we did at the end of the game. Then the special teams, we break off like a 25-yard punt return. This Chiefs team is the most momentum-fueled team, and it's really contagious across all three aspects of the team. And last note on the Chiefs, and one that worries me, is how dependent the Chiefs are on Tyreek Hill for spacing, for big plays. It feels like whenever Mahomes is doing a big scramble drill, Tyreek Hill is the guy that breaks open and he finds the spots where he knows Mahomes is looking and their chemistry is just the best. And making plays in open space, touchdown, when he's not on the field, it's, you know, we haven't gotten Josh Gordon back involved in the offense. It's been a pretty slow process. He had like one target. I think through this whole game, he only played 19 snaps and don't fully trust Hardman and some of the other guys in offense. Not a great run game right now. Although Darrell Williams, I do like him on the short yardage, more of a power back than Edwards Alaire. But without Tyree Kill, this offense is really limited and the big explosive plays aren't there. And then it's got to be the choppy six yard hit Kelsey. But then when the Hill's not there, they bracket Kelsey, big bracket defenses. When you can bracket a guy, you got to go ahead and, and pull out the bracket. But in all seriousness, they were that's what they were doing with Kelsey is they'd have a linebacker who, when it was snapped, he would immediately face to the like left side if Kelsey's lined up on that side. And so they'd have one guy who was playing on his outside. Then they'd have a linebacker turned sideways toward him. So if Kelsey does his little in route that he normally does. There's a linebacker right there running at him 
and really took him out of the game uh, when they did that type of treatment. Both Hill on the field, um, the Chiefs are a much better team, but it still doesn't look like you know a third through the season like this Chiefs team can make a run in the playoffs right now. But it is early, so we'll see. All right, let's shift to a 5-1 and one team that looks like they're going to run away with their division, and that is the 5-1 and one Dallas Cowboys. Big win on the road against a scrappy New England Patriots team. Big third and 25 pass from Dak Prescott to C.D. Lamb to get them in field goal range, tied up at the end of regulation, and then the game-winning pass also to C.D. Lamb and... No one really saw this coming into the NFC East. It was one of those divisions, hey, you know, everyone kind of has a chance to win it. Everyone's got, you know, an equal 20, 25, 30% chance of winning the division. A lot of people are on the Washington team. Uh, turns out their defense can't do anything offensively, can't make up for any of the defensive inefficiencies. Eagles are up and down a scrappy team, but not consistent enough on offense. And then the Giants have been bad just when you think, they're going to start playing good football. They've got some, you know, promising close games. They get blown out at home uh, when they're honoring one of their Super Bowl teams. And so you're left with the Cowboys, and it's tough to see any team really making it close. It uh, looks like, you know, through 10 games in the season, this division will probably be settled. Uh, the next three games for the Cowboys, they got the Vikings, Broncos, and Falcons. They could easily go 3-0 and in those games and be 8-1. and and at that point, the division would most likely be over. But let's look at the Cowboys. And CeeDee Lamb's really come on and been an amazing receiver. But it's not just CeeDee Lamb, Amari Cooper, and their tight end Schultz, who's kind of under the radar, sneaky, really good tight end. And Dak Prescott's been amazing, really good. And the best thing about it is he's really been spreading the ball out to multiple receivers. They've got three different receivers the three guys I just named Lamb Schultz and Cooper all in the top 30 in receiving yards three guys in the top 30 it's pretty incredible and they've done a lot of this through drafts so let's go through some of their draft picks and a lot of their draft picks the past few years are the cornerstone of their roster and so Randy Gregory they draft in 2015 in the second round 60th overall he's become a really effective pass rusher on that defensive line, big sack uh, in the game against the Patriots. 2016, we all know this one, fourth round, 135th pick, Dak Prescott. Then we go to 2018, 19th overall, they get the speedy linebacker, who turned out to be really crucial now as linebackers have to cover more, Leighton Vander Esch. And they also got Gallup, the receiver who's hurt right now, 81th overall, 81st overall in 2018. 2019, they get Tony Pollard in the fourth round, 128th overall. And now he's basically splitting carries, averaging slightly more per carry than Zeke Elliott. And it helps having a one-two punch at the running back position. You get a fresh Zeke when he comes in. And Pollard, also more explosive, fast type running back, really effective, really good value in the fourth round to get a running back that's you know playing as much as Pollard is. Big one in 2020, 17th overall, C.D. Lamb, top 10, top 15 receiver at this point. Been really good. And then 51st overall, they get Trayvon Diggs, brother of Stephon Diggs, cornerback out of Alabama, was a receiver, save him, flip, flipped him 
to defensive back. And you can tell that he was a receiver at some point. We see the, the pick six against the Patriots where it goes through the receiver's hands. It was not a great ball, but it's deflected by the receiver. And then Diggs has the hand-eye coordination while it's bobbling, hits his hands to catch it. And then he's also really good after he intercepts it and runs it back for a touchdown. We see so many times cornerbacks, when they intercept it, they don't really know what to do, and they reverse fields, and they just kind of crumple down, and they just have no experience running with the ball. And it's a skill that you have to acquire doing it in games and in practice where you're running away from people, but um, in a strategic way. And Diggs was able to do that extremely fast. I was surprised he was able to get the corner on that pick six, uh, turn the corner on that, and he runs it back for a touchdown, which is a really – big deal I feel like not enough focus is put on the post interception run back because that can make a really big difference whether it's getting in field goal range running it back for a touchdown rather than having to punt or something it's like these four seven point swings that happen on the run backs and Diggs was awesome and you could just tell that he was a receiver at some point because he looked really comfortable with the ball and and catching it and running with it Back to the draft, 2021, they get Micah Parsons, who's turned out to be a really good linebacker, good speed, but he's also really physical, can make tackles and open space and all that stuff. So you look at their big pieces, the cornerstones of the franchise, and they did get Zeke. I think that was the 2016 draft as well. I forgot to mention that. But all their cornerstones are draft picks the past five, six years. And so you got to give credit to Jones. I'm not sure who's making their draft picks, whether it's Jerry or his brother or whatever. But they've built this team throughout the draft the past five years. And it just goes to show you, and it's something that makes the NFL great, is each team is only a year or two of good draft picks away from turning things around. This Dallas team was pretty bad a few years ago. And defensively, they were a mess. The offense had to score, you know, 38 points a game to win. But a lot of those problems were fixed in the past few years in the draft, getting those two speedy physical linebackers in Van Der Esch and Parsons defensive line pass rush with Gregory and then in the secondary Trayvon Diggs a couple drafts away your team if your team's not very good if they hit on a couple third and fourth rounders get good guys in the in the first couple rounds too you're not that far away granted you do have to have a good quarterback for any of this to matter if you have a bad quarterback no amount of good draft picks can cover that up and the Cowboys certainly do have a good quarterback in Dak Prescott. Top, He's entered my top five quarterbacks. He was top seven. He's been great. He's been really good. And he threw for 160 yards in the first quarter. Overall, 450 yards, three touchdowns against a good Patriots defense. Secondary, J.C. Jackson, Judon. They've got um, you know a pretty solid defense that Prescott was able to cut up. Now he's got the weapons. And so this Cowboys team... Early on, you know, week one, we saw, you know, they hung around with Tampa Bay. But is this real? Questions about the Tampa Bay defense. And But so far through six games, the Cowboys are real contenders to win the NFC. They're up there with the Packers, the Bucks. At this point, they have to be in the top tier of Super Bowl contenders. All right, last thing on the NFL. I wanted to go over some of the week one reactions or the first couple week reactions and just show how wrong they are and how crazy the NFL can be when you see certain games and they just end up meaning absolutely 
nothing, and nothing, no game meant less than the week one Saints beating the Packers 38-3. Coming out of that game, people were saying, Rodgers, you can't do the offseason, condescending to teammates, asking for a trade. How's the locker room going to be? Well, turns out pretty good because they've been awesome so far. And the Saints, on the other hand, are a little iffy. We're still not sure if they're good or not, but they're certainly not a team that can beat top teams in the NFC. And the Packers have been awesome. Big road win against the Bears. I mean, that Bears defense is good. And the Packers went in there and won. And that was a game that the Bears, a lot of people were picking the Bears. You know, just one of those games where you know the Bears are really geared up. They have some momentum. They've won a couple games with fields. But Rodgers goes in there and he owns them. He was right. Next one. Through three weeks, Denver and the Panthers are 3-0. and We're like, whoa, Denver. This AFC West is stacked. Sir Yacht comes on and says, you know what? I only have a few teams in my AFC Super Bowl bubble, but the Broncos are one of them. He picked the Broncos as his Super Bowl bubble team. Turns out Broncos aren't good. Their offense is really bad. It's really bad. They can't move the ball. They couldn't move the ball against a really suspect Raiders defense. And then we go to the Panthers. They start off 3-0. They beat the Jets by five, which looks worse and worse as the weeks go by. Then they beat the Saints in week two. And so we're like, huh, because the Saints were coming off that big win against Green Bay. We're like, wait a minute. Is this Panthers team good? Then they beat the Texans. So two of their three wins are against the Jets and Texans. Probably the two worst teams in the NFL right now are two of their three wins. Then they lose to the Cowboys at home to the Eagles and at home to the Vikings. They needed to win one of those. Turns out they're not a challenger to the Bucks in the NFC South. And then let's go to another week one matchup. The Bills versus the Steelers. The Bills lose to the Steelers in Buffalo. And this was the one I missed. I was like, wait a minute. Buffalo, are we sure that they didn't have one of those great seasons, outlier seasons? Josh Allen didn't have this one outlier really good year and he's going to regress. That's what I was saying. I take that one on the chin. Turns out Josh Allen's for real, one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Pittsburgh, on the other hand, I know they won Sunday night, but it seems like we've got the little carrot situation where they're just kind of dangling a carrot in front of Steelers fans saying, hey, we're good. Keep coming to our games. Keep watching us. We're going to make the playoffs. I think it's a little bit of fool's gold going on in Pittsburgh. Um, despite that defense, I just I still don't trust the offense yet. Um, let's go to another week one game. It was Monday night football. This game seems like it was a year ago. Ravens lose to the Raiders and everyone was kind of off the Ravens after this game. So many injuries, rookie receiver Bateman's out running backs injured all over the place. Most injuries in the league. And then the Ravens have gone on and won five straight, including blowing out the chargers, beating the chiefs, comeback win against the Colts. They've been amazing. They've, uh, Lamar Jackson and the Ravens have been the best story, uh, I guess, next to uh, the Cardinals. But one of the best stories in the NFL so far, being able to win, beat really good teams despite all the injuries that they have. And then last couple, I'll go through these quick. The Eagles. The Eagles blow out the Falcons in week one. We're like, wait a minute. Everyone was down on this Eagles team. What's going on with Sirianni? He's wearing Jalen Hurts t-shirts he's got all this weird stuff going on is he actually some crazy genius guy turns out eh, kind of what we expected 
not great. Don't love to play calling on offense with the Eagles. And then last one, the Dolphins, they beat New England. And we're like, oh, man, this Miami, the secondary, this defense really good. Tua did some good things, enough to win. Turns out, nah, Tua gets nicked up, comes back still, you know, against Jacksonville. There's some plays he could have made. He had a bad interception. And also the Dolphins defense, um, they, they are a little nicked up, but not as good as we thought in week one. And, I mean, we thought they were going to be able to challenge Buffalo in that division. Turns out probably not going to happen with that Miami team. All right, that's the episode. Thank you for listening. I'll be back on Thursday for some college football and MLB postseason talk. Talk to you guys then. See ya.